Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 this morning. We're finishing up our sermon series in 1 Corinthians that we began in early January. And today we're going to start at verse 13 and move through verse 24. Now, if you've ever written a paper for your English class, you know that when you come to the end of the paper, it's a good idea to restate some of the ideas or content that you've already written into the paper. It's, It's a way of wrapping it up. And so today, what we come to are principles, but they're not new principles. In fact, it's things that the Lord has already said through this letter, but it's at its core the reason that we wanted to study this letter in the first place, so we could talk about what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, basic principles of church life. What does it look like to live in the covenant community of God's people? And so we're going to read chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, verse 13 through 24. And remember, this is God's Word. It's not man's thoughts about God. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers... You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Here's God's word. Let's pray. Father, we need your help as we study your word. We are gathered as your sheep and we need to be nourished by your food, which comes through Christ. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your people. And God, I ask that you'd be willing to use an ordinary, wretched, sinful, crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The closing of a letter almost always carries the same tone as the content of the whole letter. When I began in ministry a number of years ago, somebody gave me some good advice. They said, why don't you keep a file of notes that people write you where they've encouraged you along the way. And so my my file consists of things like these. Uh, Hey, thanks for officiating Dad's funeral. Thanks for officiating our wedding. Thanks for leading that mission trip. Thanks for preaching the word. But it also consists of things like this. Hey, Eric, I want you to know I'm praying for you as you minister here. Or I'm praying for you as you grieve. And so recently I went back and I began to reread some of those old notes. Some of them were given from people in previous churches that I've served, and some of them were given from some of you. 
And when you take a, a moment to go back and read an old letter, you see exactly what I'm talking about. And that is that the handwritten note always ends with, with, a, with a conclusion that's fitting for the tone of the letter. And here's what I mean. I mean, nobody writes a sympathy card and says, hey, thank you. Likewise, nobody writes a business letter and concludes it with, lovingly. Nobody writes a note to their wife for Valentine's and says, best wishes, sincerely. You don't do that. And the reason you don't do that is because you recognize that the ending must fit with the tone. And so it is when Paul concludes a letter to the first church that ever existed in Achaia, the end summarizes that content of the letter. Last week we saw how God's character revealed in Christ is meant to transform your character in Christ. And as you come to the last verses of the book, you notice that it's not just the character of God that transforms our character, it is also the, the works of God. And so our passage in front of us says that the gospel informs your life practice. And the text breaks down into three really simple principles. Perseverance, the principle of submission, the principle of clarity. And these principles are, are here to answer this question. What is it about the gospel which undergirds my transformation? Or where is the power to change me from who I once was to who the Lord has called me to be? Well, the first principle is in perseverance. Take a look at verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. How do you characterize childishness? How do you put into words the concept of immaturity? Well, the Bible sees immaturity and childishness as characterized by selfishness and consumed with the short term. And so the ability to consider the long-term good of not just yourself but others around you, that's actually the mark of maturity. Now, Paul's been really clear up to this point. There's a culture of childlike behavior that exists within this church at Corinth. And you'll remember back in chapter 13 when he was speaking about God's love and then our call to emulate the love which God has offered to us through Christ he said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. The point. The point is that spiritual maturity demands that you learn to think of others and the overall long-term results of your actions. So he says, be on your guard. In the original language, gregorete, be watchful. And, and the verb in its adjective form is gregor, meaning watchful. It's the reason that church history is full of people whose name was Gregory. Gregory the wonder worker, 3rd century. Gregory the illuminator, 3rd and 4th century. Gregory of Nazianzus, 4th century. Gregory of Nyssa, 4th century. Gregory the Great, 6th century. So popular is the name Watchful that it's the third most popular name among popes of the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because, of course, the Lord calls His people to be watchful, to be alert. In verse 13, the verb is in the present imperative. It's not a momentary action, be watchful right now. It is be watchful right now and be watchful in the next moment and the next moment and the next moment and the next and today, and tomorrow, and the next day. 
It's a deliberate, ongoing state of watchfulness. And also stand firm in the faith. These saints who've been so easily shaken by small matters of faith. You remember head coverings? That rocked them to their core. But then also, big things. Like the resurrection. Paul says some matters are are completely settled. And so you must root your feet squarely in the truth of Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand there, there interceding for you. You stand firm in that. Why does he have to say that? Because children question everything. And very few things are settled for children. If you've ever been a child or you've ever been a parent, you know that children will pepper you with questions. And they're awesome questions. They're great questions. But sometimes the end of the question is, sweetie, I don't know. It just is that way. And so it is with the Apostle Paul. He says, he says, children, it just is that way. It is true that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And that influences everything else in all of life. One of the marks of maturity is being able to settle some matters in your mind. And if that's true in everyday life, it is even more pressing on matters of doctrine. In Corinth, there have been teachers who've stood up and they've started to question things that should have been settled. So he says, be watchful. Stand firm in the truth. Act like men. Our culture reads that and says, oh, more masculinity. Let's be really clear. This is not a call for more masculinity. It's a call for maturity. Spiritually speaking, stop acting like a little boy. It's time to be a man. Why is it necessary? Why does he have to say that to people who are walking with Christ? Because spiritual growth is a spiritual battle. You know this, don't you? There's men all over the world who are masculine, but childish. They are characterized by selfishness. They're consumed by short-term matters. College guys who think of themselves as really masculine because of what they can do in the weight room or on the sports field or at the party or in the bedroom. And they are characterized by selfishness. And they are consumed by short term. The truth is they're only impressed with themselves. And no one else is. But when a boy looks at a man, or a little girl looks at a woman, there is something there that is entirely different at play. How can you tell when a Christian begins to grow? Well, he or she becomes less self-centered. He or she becomes more interested in the needs of others and begins to seek the long-term good over the short-term feeling. What would it look like in Corinth? And what would it look like at Christ's prayers if God's people began to mature in that way? And you would lean into the covenant community, the church, and you would increasingly invest yourself in the good of others, increasingly pursue long-term spiritual growth over a temporary short-term feeling? 
This is one of the themes of 1 Corinthians. You want to be a man of Christ? You want to be a woman of Christ? Then you learn to become an assassin of your sin. When the Spirit points out those sins to you, you embrace the Word of God. You embrace the Spirit of God. And you begin to put those little areas of insurrection to death. And Paul says that's actually what maturity looks like. And then he says, be strong. He says, keep fighting that battle day after day. And there's really multiple ways to apply verse 13. But it all falls under this call to persevere in your walk with Christ. One pastor described it like it was a recipe of perseverance. He said, watchfulness, firmness of faith, maturity, strength of faith. It's all ingredients in this recipe to produce perseverance. And then verse 14, love is like that added seasoning, which is, which is meant to produce the desired outcome. Look at verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. If you've studied with us since the beginning of this passage, it's not going to surprise you that he says this. Because the whole of Christian maturity is proven in the capacity to comprehend God's love for you and then to turn and extend that love to other people and to render the same selfless attitude toward the good of others that Christ has given to you. Now, How do these gospel ingredients blend together to prepare you for perseverance? It happens in two ways. Because the message is true and the Lord is faithful. You can and will persevere in faith in Christ because truth is actually the only thing that ever compels transformation. And the Lord faithfully walks with you while you are being transformed. Lies and falsehood always wear out and they get exposed. And in the end, they are powerless. What a comfort. To know that as the Lord works in your heart and He shows you the sinful places and He moves you to act, that He is faithful to walk along with you while He also transforms you. So that you're not alone. You'll be watchful because the gospel is true. Nobody sacrifices anything for things that are not true. But that which is life changing is that which is true. You'll stand firm in the faith because the gospel is true. You don't want to exchange the the truth for a lie. And when you know something is true, you don't entertain lies. Act like men. You'll grow in maturity in Christ because only that which is true compels that kind of growth. You'll be strong. You'll continue to fight against your own selfishness and short-sightedness because you're investing in something which is long-term and true. And it compels you. Secondly, you will... Be prepared to persevere because the Lord is faithful. So the entire message that that we believe concerning Christ hinges on a Savior who was Himself watchful. Who was Himself firm in faith of God's sovereign rescue mission and said, Yes, Lord, I will devote myself utterly and completely to that. Who did, in fact, constantly walk in perfect maturity. Not thinking of Himself, but thinking of others 
And despising the shame and despising the short-term pain of the cross, he endured it with strength. Everything Jesus did for you and me was done in love. The gospel informs your life practice. What is it about the gospel that undergirds your transformation? What is the power to change me from who I once was to who I long to be? It's found in perseverance. It's also found in submission. Now look at verse 15. He says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they had devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. And then he goes on to mention Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, who have come to him, and they have been a blessing to him, even as they were a blessing to the church in Corinth. And then he later mentions Aquila and Prisca, or Priscilla, And he says they're sending greetings also. And Priscilla and Aquila are an example of the way the gospel goes forth from a little tiny corner of the world and explodes into profound works of God's grace. Conversions didn't start in Athens. They actually started in Corinth. They didn't start in the grand theater. They started in the household of this guy named Stephanus. Now, Paul holds these up as if these are, as if they are ahead of you. So let me be really clear about what he's not saying. He's not saying be subject to people like Stephanus because he's been a believer longer than you have. I think some people in the church probably think this way. I came to faith in 1992. He or she came to faith in 1985. Well, she's ahead of me. He's ahead of me. I can't be what he means. But I do think that people in the church tend to think in unbiblical categories as if there are some who are ahead of them. This person is ahead of me because they're older and they're more respected. Now certainly the Bible tells us to respect those who are older. But is it age that earns the respect? Not primarily. Do we say things like, well, she's ahead of me because she's already raised her kids? Or... She's ahead of me. She can set a 12-course dinner party. I mean, a 12-plate dinner party with white tablecloths, and everybody's going to leave impressed. He's ahead of me because he's on a leadership team. She's ahead of me because people have noticed her gifts. That person's ahead of me because he's made a lot more money. Incidentally, most scholars believe that Stephanus is a wealthy man. Is it wealth that Paul commends? No. Because then he attaches wealthy Stephanus to his freed servants. Fortunatus, Achaicus, these are slave names. Probably freed men from inside that church. And he mentions these guys in the same breath. Is it wealth that commends someone to you? No. The Bible commends these men because they are, because, what does it say? They devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And so I want to warn you to beware of the concept of someone being ahead of you for any unbiblical or unworldly reason. As if church and your walk with Christ is a a competition. Paul says this family is ahead of you and you should be subject, subject to such as these because they always lead in service. Jesus said, my disciples think with 180 degrees different from what the world thinks. Mark 10, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave of all. 
For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. Devoted. In the church, we are to subject ourselves under those who lead in service. I wonder if you subject yourself to anybody. Let alone people who serve. Because, well, serving people, those are beneath us. One old Princeton theologian says the household of Stephanus addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. In other words, it was the utter compulsion of their whole lives. God expects me to lead in service at this church. God expects the elders of this church to lead in service. He expects the deacons of the church to lead in service. But this passage also calls you to be a fellow worker. And as a fellow worker, look at verse 16. To submit to every other fellow worker in Christ's church. Do you respect those who serve the most? Lots of ways to serve. One that I think goes most often unnoticed in this church is the setup and the teardown. You and I are sitting in chairs because somebody came and set up. They will be gone after worship because someone will tear down. We have sound and it comes to your ears because someone came to set up. People watching at home have the benefit of someone else who came and served and they get to turn on their computer and it's there. I wonder if you ever give recognition to such as these. Now, when you understand how the problem happened in Corinth, then you can begin to trace how it might happen here. Individual people in the church who have individual issues and agendas, and each person seems to pitch their tent on that one issue that consumed them. And while they try to push that issue forward, they refuse to subject themselves to the Lord's servants. But also, they fail to serve anybody else because they're so busy driving their own agenda. Perhaps they were too busy delineating, you know what, Apollos is my guy. Peter's my guy. I follow him. They're so busy deciding whether it's okay to sue a fellow brother in the church that they forget that there's supposed to be unity in the body of Christ. So focused on head coverings that they absolutely refuse to honor the Lord who is the head. So hoping that someone else will notice their spiritual gifts that they are interested in suffocating the gifts of others. Then on the other hand, there's others in the church in Corinth. They sit back. They wait to be appreciated before they will serve. Or... They're going to refuse to serve until the conditions are absolutely perfect for them personally. Sort of like your cousin Eddie, who's been unemployed for seven years while he holds out for a management position. There's some people in the church who are holding out for a management position. Only some of you have seen Christmas Vacation, the rest of you have. That's the illusion. And when I say those things, I'm never endorsing a movie. I'm never telling you to go watch it. But there is something about service that makes us want to hold out for that management position before we're willing to serve. I wonder if you respect 
those who lead in service. Paul points to Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, Priscilla, Aquila, because they follow Christ. Now, Christ is primarily Savior, but second, He is the true example. When I was new to the Christian faith, there was almost nothing that I found more helpful than older guys who were walking with Christ three or four years ahead of me. They were following Christ as I longed to follow Christ. And the Bible says that is really helpful. But you see, all of the examples of the Bible are following the example of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, Christ who emptied Himself by taking on the form of a servant. And so the principle of submission is modeled after Jesus who submitted Himself perfectly to the Father. We submit to those that the Lord has put over us. Now, I do want to make a quick comment on the holy kiss. Um, This is a standard greeting in the ancient world into which Paul writes. You and I could substitute the, the holy handshake, the holy fist bump, the holy hug. But the point is that, that you and I are, not, are, to, are called to greet one another as the word is actually emphasizing holy. You're set apart by Christ. I'm set apart by Christ. We welcome one another in context because we belong to the same Lord. And what does that do in the context of the church? Paul says it creates a kind of warmth where no one is above or beneath another. You welcome them and you say, ah, you're with me. And here's the beauty. It's not about the kiss. It's about the identity of the one who you would would embrace. The gospel informs your life practice. What is it about the gospel that undergirds my transformation? It's found in perseverance, submission, but also clarity. It's our final principle. Verse 21 says that I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Now, in all the letters... Paul has a scribe. He has someone else write down the letter. And then he gets to the end of the letter and he says, I need to authenticate what I've just said and here's the content. Hand me the pen. And he grabs it and he starts writing this last portion with a kind of clarity in order to draw a line in the sand. And this is what he says. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. If you're visiting today and you don't know the Lord... I want to make really clear to you, Paul is not putting his finger in your chest. Who did he write the letter to? He wrote the letter to Christians. And so he anticipates that this is read in the church. He does this exact same thing in Galatians 1, 8, and 9. He does the exact same thing in 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. And so the line is drawn to make it clear that this is spoken to those in the church, who do not love the Lord Jesus enough to be willing to submit to the words that he has given to them. And so, in fact, the meaning is this. You don't love the church. You desire to tear down the church. But you want to be in the church. And you want to have the the, the moniker Christian. This line is drawn in this way. There's a curse upon you. Having heard the message of the gospel, you are neither willing to submit to the message of the gospel nor help advance the message of the gospel. So the curse is upon you. He says anathema. 
I suspect we need that kind of gospel clarity in the church today. If you desire to follow Christ, if you love Jesus, then the gospel is is an all-of-life embrace. It's not a segmented or isolated into some corners of your heart. It's everything. And then at the end of of verse 22, he says, Our Lord, come. That's the calling. And so if the curse is anathema, this is maranatha. It's an Aramaic expression that makes up the prayer that every genuine, sincere believer knows. Oh, Jesus, come soon and make all things right. It's exactly the same prayer that the Bible ends with. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus promises to John the Apostle, he says, John, surely I'm coming soon. And the Apostle John says, truly, come, Lord Jesus. Some of you may be crying out to the Lord today for that very thing. You feel the weight of grief or fear or anxiety. Your heart is troubled by circumstances that are beyond your control. How do I pray when I feel overwhelmed? How do you pray when you, when you see the sadness of the world and you can't even fix it? How do you pray when life's going fine, but you're still empty? You pray, O oh Lord, come. It's the same prayer the people of old prayed in the Old Testament. Come, Lord, deliver your people. Come and meet me in my heartache. And someday soon, make all things right. And so it's a prayer for those who feel hopeless. And it's a prayer for those who are most hopeful. Because it's a prayer of faith. You alone must come and restore your creation and bring the shalom of peace that we're crying out for. Would you come, Lord, and make everything that's wrong right? We close with the comfort. It's the last line of the whole letter, verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. What is it about this gospel that undergirds my transformation? Where is the power to change me from who I once was to who I long to be? Change is only possible if God's grace is with you. What a tender word that is to very imperfect people. God's grace is with you. Perfect clarity to provide a way of salvation for you. Your hope lies in this one comfort that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, His super abundant generosity to give you far better than what your sins deserve. That grace is with you every single step of the way, whether you execute with faithfulness the promises or not. And if anyone in the church at Corinth would conclude that Paul is harsh or heavy-handed, he says, everything that I've written here flows from my love for you in Christ. If you have a loved one who's ever said something that's hard to hear, 
then you know that they are just about the only one who could ever say that. Because you quite often recognize that the person who is willing to say something challenging to you loves you more than you love yourself. Paul says, make sure you understand this letter in that context. So here's the grace of the Lord walking with you. Here's the weight of the substance of God's word in your lap. Embrace this and watch as the Lord transforms you. And so it is that the gospel informs your life practice. Perseverance, submission, clarity. Let's close in prayer.